If you knew that your life depended on saving the environment, what would you do differently? I'm Desiree Nielsen, and welcome to the All Sorts Podcast. Today's episode, the second to last of our very first season, may just change the way you think about environmental issues and your place in this world. I'm speaking with Maya Wickler, who is an impressive force for climate advocacy and environmental justice. Maya is a PhD student in political ecology, a climate justice organizer, and a journalist for outlets such as Teen Vogue and Vice. So, you know, total underachiever. (laughs) Maya was recently selected as a National Geographic Early Career Explorer in 2020 to document cross-border salmon stories and raise awareness about the threats to wild salmon from mining in northern British Columbia, which is my home province. She is currently directing a short documentary film for the North Face in the Arctic on the intergenerational women-led fight to protect the Arctic refuge, and I got to speak with her just before she left for Alaska this summer. Her work focuses on the intersections of climate justice and wielding storytelling as a tool for justice, and she's really changed the way I view both the immediacy of the climate crisis, because it is very much a crisis, and how I view my role as a person on this planet. We talk about her time at the Fairy Creek blockade, as well as how her childhood health issues created the awareness that what happens in our environment affects us directly. If you're like me, you know that time in nature is soul food. If I'm stressed, the first thing I think to do is go outside. Give me a beach or a forest and I am at ease. And living where I do, I often take it for granted that this nature will always be here to sustain me. So let's dive in and spend a little time thinking about how we can work towards sustaining nature in its time of need. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. And I, you know, I remember meeting you, you know, by some off chance at like a, you know, Legree fitness thing. It was Legree and Juice Juice Truck. Truck. Yeah. 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 And just hearing your story. And I was like, who is this woman? Like, so amazing. And, you know, like as a journalist, as a community organizer and as a filmmaker, I'm just like fascinated by your work. And it really focuses on like the intersections between environment and community and human rights. And so I would love to ask you, um, A, because I'm nosy, but I always love knowing how people like get to where they are right now. Like what early experiences led you to this work? Like, how did you know, like, this is what you want to do with your life? Mm -hmm. I get asked that question all the time, sometimes by folks who are wanting to figure out their careers or by people who are, you know, in similar fields and they got their start in university. But for me, it was really ever since I can remember because I grew up with such extreme severe asthma. And so I always had a very I was always very connected to my body and my environment. I never saw myself as separate from it. And and that was just something that was so ingrained in me since a very young age. And I had so many different health issues throughout my childhood and some like very extreme um, near-death experiences because of my asthma and like ICU stints and things like that when I, before I was even in a like 18. And so I think it just really put into perspective for me that I'm unwell if my environment is unwell and also just such a deep reverence for life and such, um, I, I really feel like there is almost never a day that I go without gratitude and without feeling wonder and the preciousness of everything. And so it's, it's made for, I think, sense of very early age, I've been extremely sentimental, extremely, um, like deeply in love with the forests and with like healthy environments and stuff like that. And so, um, that definitely has been just a part of who I am. And then on top of that, I grew up in Philadelphia, which is very much a concrete jungle, very much a polluted place. And our family would go vacation every summer in Acadia National Park. So for me, I felt like I had these two weeks out of the year to look forward to nature. And otherwise, there wasn't much access to it. 
And so it really, um, I feel like I just always had the perspective of these places being incredibly precious and needing to be fought for. And I also remember when I was in seventh grade, I think sixth grade or seventh grade, so I might have been 12, my mom, she was always trying to help me kind of realize and connect with just what I was born with and feel like I could continue to relate to the world because it was very isolating to like have the health conditions that I had at a young age. Um, and I remember that she showed me the first ish green issue of Vanity Fair that had Madonna on the cover and she had earmarked a page of it that was about strip coal mining in West Virginia. And the piece was about children who were developing severe asthma because they were riding these school buses and, and exposed to such extreme air pollution from the coal mining that their school bus windows were covered in black. You could hardly even see out of them. And I remember just crying, thinking, I can't believe like a kid like me who didn't, who wasn't born with this would, would have that forced upon them. And I just was so, I was so upset. And I remember that I took that green issue to my science teacher the next day. And I was just like, we have to do something about this. And that really just, you know, I feel like that, that reverence that I had was always there. And I think that reading that piece and realizing that there were children who, who so unjustly had what I had to suffer through just was a catalyst for me. And mm -hmm. so it really has been since I was 11 trying to organize on environmental justice and recognizing these intersections of human rights impacts. And um, so I've never seen issues of an environmental rights separate from human rights. And I think that's a really powerful thing, you know, for so many of us, I mean, I was, you know, born in Northern BC and even now in Vancouver, living in an urban environment, we're still really close to nature. And I think it can be very, very easy to take it for granted, like the clean air and the trees and the water, which right now, you know, so many of our beaches are closed because of E. coli outbreaks. And, you know, it's really easy to sort of separate ourselves as human from the nature or maybe lack of nature that we inhabit, um, which is, of course, the wrong thing to do and probably explains everything about how we treat <laughs> the nature we have been gifted. And, you know, particularly we live in such capitalist cultures and they're really extracting, right? Like, and I almost feel like this is accelerating the more, you know, the more people decide that like millions are not enough, but billions are better. And, you know, like on one hand, like many of us, myself included, who, you know, live in these kind of places like Vancouver, like we recognize like how restorative time in nature is. Like yesterday, the first thing I did to escape the heat is we went to the mountains and like we plunged in like a mountain stream and, mm -hmm. and recognizing that connection and recognizing what a gift that is. And yet I don't think we often sort of connect the growth and like the evolution of our culture or economies to the destruction of nature. Cause that's really at the heart of, of so much of what we've built for ourselves now. Like, like, I'm just so curious to know, like, what are your thoughts here? Or like, mm -hmm. you know, what, what suggestions do you have for like people like me, you know, who can get back into connection with this reality and recognize that like, it's not us versus nature, like that we are that connected. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the, the ideological purpose of capitalism is individualism, which inherently severs our connection from the environment and from one another and perpetuates that competitive, like the competition that's inherent in a capitalistic economy. It perpetuates um, this, this never ending scarcity mentality, which drives consumption, which drives that concept that there's never enough and that we always need more. And so I really think that the antithesis of that is an everyday place of abundance and an everyday place of relationship. And I think that we really saw that happening in the pandemic during the earlier lockdowns was this return to the local and to community and these very close relationships in a 
kind of geographic proximity. And so when toilet paper was getting like, you know, there was nothing left in stores, people were pooling their resources and helping one another. And so to me, that is, that's what it means in our everyday is like, we have to consciously shed what we have been socialized to believe, which is scarcity and individualism. And instead think about all of the relationships that we're constantly surrounded by. Like we're in relationship with our environment all the time, just through exhaling and inhaling. We're in relationship with one another all the time. And all of that can only be deepened and strengthened. And, and I think that, you know, we're seeing a lot of community gardens come up and a lot of different, you know, in my community in the Highlands on Vancouver Island, it's been so incredible. They started doing a free seed bank. And so everybody brings whatever extra seeds that they have from their garden. And then they also bring whatever starts that they want to donate. And so it's really beautiful because the the goal is to support community members, have better food security and recognizing how important that is with the climate crisis. And so I just think that there's all these little ways that we can reflect personally and recognize that the personal is always political and recognize that our actions in the everyday, you know, it might lead to something five years from now that you never saw that linear connection, but the capacity of you being able to like expand your mind and expand your relationships could be where it's positioning you in a couple of years to like very much catalyze some type of change or very much be able to be in the place of saying yes to, you know, supporting a cause or supporting an individual who is leading something, you know, there's just all these different ways. So I think that it's also really important for folks to um, also not get discouraged by the way that we're totally trained right now, especially with social media to love instant gratification. And I think it's hard with how urgent these crises feel but just recognizing that, you know, things don't have to be linear. We don't need instant gratification. It's more about the integrity of living out these values and principles of abundance and relationship and a sense of responsibility to one another and not being so focused on the individual or just like a nuclear concept of relationships. Well, and that that very notion of sort of separation, and I think sort of like the fallacy of separation, that like we are somehow separate and not in existence and not in relationship, not only like with the people around us, but like the very place that we live. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's for me as a health professional too, it's, again, sort of reconnecting people to embodiment of this idea that like our physical vessel is not just carrying around a brain, like there, there is purpose and there is meaning in the body as well. And I think it's that sort of disconnection from nature and our environment very much mirrors that like disconnection completely from like our own physicality too. Mm -hmm. And just being curious about your environment around you and how it does relate to you. Because I remember when I first moved to BC I felt, I almost felt like when I was walking through forests or walking along rivers and creeks, I just felt blind because I had no ecological literacy. I had no idea what plants I was looking at. I had no idea what berry something was. I I had no idea what watershed was what, what was coming from where. I just felt like completely disoriented in my lack of knowing and in my inability to understand the connectedness of all these different things. And it's been really incredible over the last couple of years being on that journey of curiosity and learning about what is all around me and how that completely is related to my body and my way of moving about space or, you know, being able to even harvest different wild berries and so many plants that are incredibly medicinal and just powerful, like salal berries are so amazing. And I think that just challenging ourselves to really wonder where is the water coming from and what is happening to that watershed? Where are these, like, what is happening to this area where these berries used to be really plentiful and maybe this year they weren't, you know, just having more curiosity and 
being more observant about the places that we are, I think are very much related to also being more observant about our own bodies and our own sense of well-being and how we're feeling in those places too. I want to ask, I want to dig in a little bit to this curiosity because you, so in 2019, you traveled to Alaska to learn more about the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. And it, at the time, was being threatened by oil leases, which were mandated under the Trump administration. Like, what was that experience like for you? I actually think it's it's very much connected to what we're talking about because I was... I was assigned to report on this expedition with Teen Vogue. And I found out when the expedition would be taking place and I started doing some background preliminary research. And I saw on like a kind of random website that the Gwich'in, which is an indigenous community that's being impacted by oil and gas drilling in the Arctic, that they were hosting an emergency climate summit in um, Fort Yukon, which is one of the villages there. And the climate summit was happening, I think it was just five days before the expedition was supposed to begin. And so I reached out to the North Face to see if we could adjust the expedition to include that climate summit. And at the time, they I don't think that they understood the value of contextualizing an expedition with the stories of the land and how orienting that really is. And so they said no. And so then I went and asked someone who is in Vancouver. He's now actually the CEO of Native Shoes. And I had explained to him and his wife what had happened and how desperate I felt to get out there to get to this climate summit. And because there's no better folks to hear about what's happening than the ones who are living out the impacts every single day and who have these very long-standing relationships to the land. And so they completely supported me in getting on a bush plane and flying out to the to the Arctic in this village pretty much a week before the expedition. So I flew out on my own, just packed a tent in my sleeping bag, had no idea where I was going. I had never been to Alaska before. I kept calling the like organizing committee to just see, I was like, is there an Airbnb? Like, I was like, is there, I have no idea where I'm going and I could never get in touch with anybody. So I really felt like I was just entering in that place completely blind. And I got on this four seater bush plane. And as we took off and flew over the land, I just immediately started crying because I was like, this is what it's about. Like the land was just so beautiful. It's like, it was unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I got off the bush plane and like the plane landed in this gravel kind of dirt strip. And somebody was driving by in the pickup truck and they were like, you look like you're here for the climate summit. And I just got in the back of their pickup truck with my backpacking pack and ended up camping along the Yukon river for a couple of days with folks from the summit. And it was just absolutely amazing. I made such incredible relationships and connections that I'm still in touch with folks today. And just hearing from the elders, the way that they observe pollinator behavior changing or the way that hunters observed caribou migration changing and their hunting seasons being impacted by climate change, having such a deep intimate understanding of animal behavior and you know, just the knowledge of seasons being so altered because climate change is impacting the Arctic twice as fast as the rest of the world. So it's, you know, routes that you could have traveled to where it was very dependable that rivers would be completely ice. That no longer was the case. So it's just the most powerful stories that were really grounded in important values. And at the end of the day, like the most deep, unwavering love for a place and for culture and community. And so I just felt like it was the best way to understand that place. And so after that, I flew back to, to the city to meet with folks for the exhibition. And then we went back out into the refuge. And I kept thinking the entire time that stories are a sensory experience because if I had entered that refuge without 
having the stories of the elders and all those community members to to help me see and to help me understand what was in front of me, the meaning was completely lost. And so it was truly such an illuminating, powerful experience. And, and it also having relationships inform your way of understanding issues creates such a heightened level of accountability and responsibility because the entire time I was doing my reporting or working on my piece when I came back for Team Vogue, I kept thinking about this elder Kathy who I just completely bonded with and totally adored. And she had run up to me at the end of the summit and handed me a handwritten letter. And she said, Maya, I want you to include this in your piece and I want you to take a photo of it. And she wrote a letter to Senator Lisa Murkowski saying something along the lines of, please stop um, drilling in the Arctic refuge without the caribou, I'm going to starve. And she was just illuminating these intersections of food security and sovereignty that is just so inextricable from oil and gas drilling impacts on the Arctic. And so I just wanted to do Kathy justice and I wanted to do all these folks justice who I met. So I really do think that um, the power, like when you're when you're hearing someone's story and someone's experience, you're witnessing. And when you have witnessed something, you then have a responsibility to what you just witnessed. And so I just think that that completely informed and shaped my way of experiencing Alaska and that expedition. And it's continued today. I'm flying to Alaska in just a couple of days and continuing my work by directing a documentary for the North Face now with, um, really, really powerful, inspiring Gwich'in women, a mother-daughter duo who have been advocating tirelessly for their land and and just continuing ways to tell these stories and engage audiences in more meaningful, accountable ways of hearing and learning about issues that are really informed by relationships. And so I think that um, I would also just like remind all of us to think about who we are accountable to and who we're responsible to and like, who are we doing things for and just kind of going beyond ourselves and really having that guide and inform how we show up every day. And just, you know, such a, again, such a beautiful reminder. I think, you know, the thing that we're talking about is this connection be human and between human and nature. And, you know, for those of us who, who don't yet feel sort of like in relationship and really, you know, connected to nature in and of itself that, you know, recognizing that there are people living on this land and, you know, as humans, it is our duty to care for other humans and, you know, to ensure that, you know, people have safe air, safe land, safe food, you know, and, you know, that, through telling these stories and through really connecting the dots for people, it's such a powerful thing because it makes, I think it makes it more real for us, you know, particularly if we are living in a concrete jungle and, and, you know, feeling so disconnected from, you know, something like the Arctic, but to realize that this is, you know, part of this connected planet and, you know, we are like all of us have a responsibility to it. Um, I want to shift focus a little bit, um, you know, because you came back from the front lines of the Ferry Creek blockade recently, which is on Vancouver Island, which is where you are, um, which is also where I grew up. Um, and I think for a lot of people, again, if they feel removed from this, like if they haven't experienced these places, if they haven't been to the Arctic, if they haven't been to like the West coast of Vancouver Island, um, I don't think you realize like how much magic there can be in these places. Um, and it's home to like rare temperate rainforests. And like, as when I was a kid, cause I'm you know much older than you, like I still remember like the huge protests that helped protect the Carmana Valley. And, you know, it was such, it felt like such a potent time. It felt like, oh, wow, things are changing. Like we're, we're recognizing that nature is important. And of course we sort of get to this place so many years later and it's like, how are we here again? Like, how are we still here? <laughs> Uh, because this new threat is literally just like right down the road. Can you, for people who don't know what's happening there or have never heard of Fairy Creek, like, can you talk about what's happening there and like who is trying to save the forests right now? Mm -hmm. 
Well, right now there's less than 3% of ancient forests left in BC. And so for folks who aren't familiar with what that means, it means that we're basically have, you know, studies have shown that at the current rate of logging, there's only three to five years of old growth left. And so we're in a moment right now where we're really faced with extinction. This is, and it's at the hands of corporations and politicians who are failing to uphold climate commitments, failing to uphold um, recommendations that were provided by the old growth independent review panel, which told politicians to have immediate deferrals for um, ecosystems that, that were at risk with old growth. And it's really important for folks to also understand that this is directly related to the climate crisis, which is an issue that affects everybody. So while Fairy Creek is very local in scale, it's also incredibly global of what it represents and just how little is left in BC and in Canada of old growth intact ancient rainforests. And a recent study also came out showing that BC's forest industry releases twice as many um, twice as much carbon emissions as the Alberta tar sands. So it's extremely detrimental to the environment and it isn't being accounted for in any of the government's climate reporting and any of their climate mitigation plans. Instead, they just keep on saying that the forests are carbon sinks, which they really no longer are because there is so little left. And the only way that forests are carbon sinks are when the trees are left standing. And it doesn't work the same when they're being replanted and then logged and replanted and logged. And so I think that there's a lot of misconception around, you know, this supernatural BC, the way that the province is portrayed as this incredible refuge and place of environmental wonder and, you know, these, these supernatural environments and ecosystems, which they very much once were. And so on Vancouver Island, this resistance has been going on for almost a year now, where folks realized that Teal Jones, a logging company, was set to log the Fairy Creek watershed, which is one of the last intact valleys and rainforest watersheds, essentially, on southern Vancouver Island. And if you look at a Google Maps image of that region, you will see what it really looks like. It's The map is just these kind of scarred, barren hillsides and valleys and and it's all sand tone you know because there's nothing left and then you have this one section that's completely green and that is fairy creek and so it really stands out as kind of the you know that's the slogan of the movement is that it's the last stand because it really is it's one of the last stands of ancient rainforests that haven't been touched by the greed of corporations and and by the inaction of politicians and so um activists started doing blockades last summer and they stopped road building and i think that folks also really need to understand how how violent road building is on the land i have been going out to Fairy Creek since February in the winter. And I've seen and hiked along some of the last roads that were built to go into the watershed that were stopped by the blockades. And you can see the dynamite, like yellow cord across the road. Like they ex use explosives to create these roads. And then you can also see where these shards of rock have blasted into cedars that weren't logged, but are across from the road. So all of the trees that line it that haven't been logged are still impacted. They have blast indentations and rocks lodged into them. So it's an extremely destructive scene just to build a road. And that is what the blockades originally halted. And in the last year, it's grown exponentially. Now there's over seven different blockade camps and different ones keep popping up in areas where people keep catching word of where there's going to be logging of any of these very last few ancient 
trees. And these are trees that are upwards of over a thousand years old. There was one cedar that was found to be 2000 years old. So it's like absolutely irreplaceable ecosystems and, and, you know, trees and forests. So I think that everybody who is involved recognizes how high these stakes are and just how urgent the issue is because these are some of our last fights that we will fight. And one of my friends who was arrested, she goes by her camp name Pony and she was arrested from her tree set. And I remember when I was out with her at one of the blockades in the winter when it was snowing um, and everyone was just sleeping in wall tents and <laughs> it was just 10 folks gathered by a fire during that time. And she told me, you know, I don't think the fight for old growth is going to last very long because either we will win and it will have to, we will have to win quickly or it will all be logged. And there's so little left that it will all be logged quickly. And so really this, this movement is not, you know, we have such a limited space of time to act. And so, you know, and it also goes without saying as well that local indigenous communities are severely impacted by these situations where they're forced to depend upon old growth logging and basically choose between putting food on their table and that type of survival or destruction of their ancient forests, which are also their ancestors and which also holds critical cultural knowledge and is inseparable from their language and identity. And so um, Diddy Dot and Pachi Dot are the two nations whose territories fall within the two tree farm licenses that Teal Jones is currently holding. And, um, and Teal Jones was recently awarded an injunction in the Supreme Court where they can have the RCMP enforce their rights to log and to do whatever they need by any means necessary to remove any sort of dissent or protesters. And I think that it's really important for folks to understand just how negatively impactful the, this industry is with Indigenous rights because the revenue benefit agreement that Pachidot has signed with the province and with Teal Jones mandates that if any member of their community speaks out against logging, that it immediately be silenced, that that dissent needs to immediately stop. And that is outlined in their revenue agreement. And, and they only will get $300,000 in the first of three years of this revenue benefit agreement. So that's really not much money at all. And I think it's super important for folks to understand how that $300,000 clearly means a lot to that indigenous community because of the choices that they are forced to make with what they have to sacrifice in order to gain that $300,000. And since May 17th, RCMP have been enforcing that injunction, which has involved an extremely militarized operations. It's involved 24 hour surveillance seven days a week. It's involved helicopter raids, paramilitary gear, threats of tear gas and rubber bullets. They're using um, excavators and different equipment like construction equipment in ways that are actually illegal and, and go against what WorkSafe BC has outlined in the ways that that equipment should not be within a certain distance of a human. And they're using it to remove activists who have cemented their arms and different parts of their bodies into the ground to try and stop the logging trucks from going through. So they're every single day, they're putting people's lives at extreme unnecessary risk. They're conducting violent arrests. They're completely obstructing media from even being able to go in and report. I was on assignment for the National Observer and I was obstructed from being able to witness and report more than five times. It was extremely maddening and frustrating because we have a freedom of the press and charter of rights and freedoms to enact our rights to be able to witness. And that's integral for a functioning democracy. The public has the right to know what industry and what police are willing to do to log the last bit of rainforest and that it will come at any cost. And so this, the fight to save Ferry Creek is 
much more than just big tree activism. It's also a fight for democracy. It's a fight for recognizing indigenous rights and the impacts that a capitalist economy has on small local indigenous communities. And it's a fight for the importance to be able to witness. It's a fight for the importance to be able to stand up for climate justice in the time of a climate crisis. And, you know, right now you and I are doing this interview during a record-breaking heat wave in June. And so we really just do not have any time to delay action on climate. We have no time to delay action on indigenous rights and having a just transition from these harmful industries. And so, and folks recognize that and thousands of people have been showing up and they're absolutely unrelenting and unwavering. And um, each time a camp gets taken down by RCMP, it's put back up the next morning. And folks are just, it's life and death for folks out there. And it's, you know, one of my friends who's Nachalmeth Ioclapis has very explicitly said that this is a matter of life and death for coastal indigenous peoples to be able to protect these last places and just how sacred they are. So I, I think it's important for everybody to really ask themselves, what are you willing to do if you know that you have only three to five years left? What, what can you consciously live with within yourself past that point, no matter what happens? You know, did we really act in utmost integrity with fully living out the principles of, you know, putting forth what it means to live in a just society that respects the environment and respects people's rights. And, you know, for so many of us listening who, who want to do something, who want to do more, like how can, how can folks who maybe can't travel to the front lines of these blockades, like how can we, can we call our, you know, MLAs, as we call them here in British Columbia, can we call our politicians? Like, how can we make an impact? Like, how can we put pressure on the folks who are using everything in their power simply to protect the ability to earn money Mm -hmm. off a resource that is priceless? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that people need to really understand that every single one of us has a place to make a difference. And I always say that the biodiversity of this planet represents the diversity needed in this movement, the diversity of tactic, the diversity of skills, of networks, of resources, of approach, every little thing really matters. So I always encourage folks to think about what your skills are. What are your passions? What do your networks look like? What do your resources look like? Maybe you're an amazing fundraiser. And if you can't get to the front lines, you want to fund Indigenous youth leadership on the front lines. Maybe you're super media savvy and you can rally together incredible resources and pitch to news outlets and make sure that there is the coverage that RCMP and the government are so adamantly seeking to hinder and obscure. And, you know, maybe you're an artist. The resistance always needs artists. They convey the emotion in the heart and the vision that people are trying to imagine of what is possible. And so there really is a role for everybody. I think that we also need to be putting incredible pressure on the government to not just do sham deferrals or temporary delays or, you know, these one-off passes. Like we need a paradigm shift. And so that means a complete overhaul to thinking that we can even log old growth. There needs to be an old growth moratorium. It goes beyond the fight for Fairy Creek. We simply cannot log another ancient tree. We can't afford it. And that is applicable to the entire world. So if you're not in Canada, protests at Canadian embassies, you know, what Canada is doing to the forest impacts the world because every single country's emissions are a part of this global responsibility to address the climate crisis. And so Canada is failing on upholding their commitments to be, you know, a a place of leadership on this global scale of climate action. And so people need to put pressure on an international level. Folks around the world need to demand that any ancient forest just needs to be protected and that there needs to be a moratorium to old growth logging. And 
at the end of the day, there has to be a just transition. And so we've been seeing calls for that in, in the United States with the Green New Deal. And that has been brought into conversation as well on a policy level in Canada. But I think that there can be much more emphasis that there must be a just transition because there inevitably will be communities impacted who depend on resource extraction. But nobody should have to decide between survival in your media every day or our collective survival over the next couple of years because we can't continue extracting resources at, at the rate that we are today with the climate crisis. Well, and, and what you said just there, like this idea that you have to choose between your survival and the survival of the planet and, you know, coming back to this idea that, you know, the, the sort of like supremacist and very patriarchal systems then capitalist systems that we have set up are forcing these choices. And I think Canada really flies under the radar to a lot of people. Like, you know, so much has been talked about, about the Brazilian rainforests and like they have been on a global stage, but I think that many people sort of think of Canada as this very wild place, this very friendly, this very polite place where, you know, like these kind of things don't happen. And I, and I think that people don't realize like what you said a moment before, like really sort of shook me because I've never heard this before that, you know, our oil sands and our tar sands that, that do sort of get publicity and attention on a global stage, like our own sort of extractive forestry industry in BC is doing worse for the planet Mm -hmm. than that is because I think people sort of already are sort of attuned to what's going on in Alberta. And so for them to realize or recognize that what is happening here in BC is, you know, just as or more so. Plus, we also have the loss of these very ancient trees that are not going to come back. And um, I think, you know, most people don't sort of recognize the amount of politics uh, and politicking behind these choices and behind the sort of like Canada has always been sort of a resource driven economy. And you're currently working on your PhD in political ecology. And I think at first glance, people sort of question like, how is ecology political? But I think this conversation that we're having really begins to hit home where the politics, you know, runs in. But can you speak a little bit more to how politics is threatening biodiversity, but also like our relationship to the natural world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I'm actually working on a paper with my PhD right now, and I've been doing so much research on corporate abuse in BC around forests. And there really is just so much manipulation of truth and reality that impacts public perception and imagination of what forests even are. And so I think, you know, it's, I, I was reading just the other day that a former forestry spokesperson referred to clear cuts as temporary meadows and and was then on a high school tour, the lawyer of Rainforest Flying Squad, which is the grassroots kind of label for Fairy Creek, um, he actually wrote to me that that former forestry spokesperson had toured his high school and gave that same kind of speech to his high school class of promoting clear cuts as these places for biodiversity. So I think that people need to recognize that there have been decades of campaigns of misinformation. And on top of that, there's a lot of greenwashing just in our everyday. You know, when you drive through areas, even on the island where there are clear cuts behind behind what they call beauty strips, which are just like sections of the highway that are forested. And then if you were to have an aerial view, you could see how vast the clear cuts go and expand beyond that beauty strip of a forested, forested um, kind of roadway. And so these, these ways of the public consciousness around the environment being impacted by the politics and by corporate influence are completely present in our everyday. And so I think it's really important to recognize that. And and I, I remember what the experience that I had that made me want to pursue a PhD in political ecology was two years ago, I was volunteering with the Wilderness Committee 
opportunity to do trail builds in the wall brand, which is one of the ways that they get folks out into old growth forests because so few people have ever experienced it. And I was with a War of the Woods veteran. And for folks who don't know, War of the Woods is what um, the whole fight to protect Clioquet Sound is referred to as War of the Woods, where it was the most arrests and it was the most the biggest historic civil disobedience movement in Canada's history. I think over 800 people were arrested. And so I was speaking with this guy while we were building, putting a bridge together. And I asked him if it was, if it felt surreal to be back here again, trying to protect these places that are all in the same region. And he said that it wasn't so surreal in the sense that the same fight is happening. He said, what was surreal is that this time around, people don't know what forests are. And when he was doing that fight in the nineties, there was still a ton of old growth left and people really understood what that meant to experience a forest. But now people equate second growth and tree farms to forests. They equate tree plantations that are sprayed with glyphosate to forests. And I think that um, that is one of the ways that corporate abuse and these political systems impact public perception and relationship to the environment because people forget and lose that memory and that sense of what it feels like to walk through an old growth forest. And it's truly an experience unlike anything else. I, I always feel like the best way to describe it is that a part of yourself wakes up that you never knew was sleeping when you walk through an old growth forest because the light is literally different. It filters through the canopy in a different way, which inherently makes color different. It's just these, all these different sensory experiences that are unparalleled to any other place. And on top of that, the canopies have their own ecosystems. Like it's just the biodiversity and the, the sheer magnificent magnificence of these environments is just so unparalleled that it's absolutely mind-blowing. And very few people are able to have those experiences. How do we return to truth? How do we reclaim memory that hasn't been distorted by the greed of corporations? How do we reclaim our relationships to place and how do we use that to mobilize action? How do how do we use that restoration and reclamation of really ourselves because we are part of these places and assert that into this broader broader movement for climate justice and to protect these forests. And so I think that's why, um, especially in this time of a climate crisis, anything that is environmental is inherently political and. And um, also folks might've heard of Suzanne Simard's book where she is writing all about the mother tree and her experience as one of the only women in the forestry industry. And then as the only woman in the kind of forestry sector of academia doing this type of research and just how she faced so much um, you know, pushback for saying that forests were these interconnected relational networks and systems. And a lot of that was coming from scientists who were just so entrenched in their principles of Darwinism, which reemphasized really principles of capitalism, which is individualism and competition and survival of the fittest. And that's actually not how forests work. And so a lot of the um, you know, the, the, dis, the disapproval really that she faced was because of that entrenched ideology. And so, you know, science is not objective. Science is not apolitical. It's absolutely political and it always has been. And so I just think that um, kind of having awareness around those histories and stories and, and having awareness of, of what, we actually are able to perceive every day is just so critically important to kind of shaping the discourse and the conversations that we're having right now on these issues. And, and to recognize that all systems were created from a certain point of view and a certain perspective and that we have the power. And I think this is something that's so hard for me and I'm sure that it's hard for a lot of other people is that for a long time, I didn't feel 
like I had the power to make any change. Mm -hmm. How could I, as one person, contribute to making any change when the cards seem so stacked against you? And I think we have a really beautiful opportunity right now to question everything, Mm -hmm. to question absolutely everything. Why do we think the way that we think? Why do we accept the way things are? Because who made them the way they are? And I think, you know, nature is such a gift. It is literally life, you know, and this is the time. (laughs) This isn't, there's no other time. Like this is the time for all of us to wake up and to do whatever we can in whatever small way. And I think people like you, I'm so grateful for, you know, people like you doing your work to, to share these stories, to create this awareness, to drive these conversations forward so that people like me can have the opportunity to learn more and know more and hopefully do a little bit better in our own lives to help. You know, I read a quote once that was saying, we need more peacekeepers. We need more cooks. We need more caretakers. So I think that it's also important to understand too, for anybody who's wanting to get involved at the way that we value people's support and the way that we value what it means to make an impact is sometimes just offering care is an incredible means of supporting a movement for climate justice. Maybe you're offering care to somebody who you know has been at the blockades and that's, that is just you providing meals or, you know, fundraising to support with gas money or, you know, providing, if there's an extra room in the house, providing a place to stay for people who are wanting to volunteer at an action. Like there's just so many ways that people can do little things every day that is supporting the larger community to be completely equipped and well, to just be energized and well to continue this fight. And so I do think that every single day we have a choice to of how we can show up and how we can make a difference. And it doesn't need to be some grand, big, large scale thing where we have this instant gratification of what that action did or what that, or what the impact it might've had. I think instead, if we just focus on, you know, how can I show up for somebody today? And how can I show up for my community today? And what does my community need from me is a great way to just wake up each day and really have intention and think about how we can have a more embodied way of living out the future that we all are so seeking to have. Thank you for that. I, um, so speaking of instant gratification, I actually do close each one of these episodes with some (laughs) rapid questions. (laughs) So in a very deep, meaningful conversation, um, we're going to end with just a little instant gratification. So, um, this is an almost impossible question, so I apologize, but (laughs) what, what vista or what wilderness or what place have you seen that was just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I'm going to be so predictable right now, but it's the only thing that I'm thinking about are these old growth forests. I absolutely love the wall brand with all my heart. It's just beyond, you know, I have camped there several times. It's where I did the trail building and it's in Diddy Dot territories. And, um, and so I just encourage anyone to go out there if you can. It's so beautiful. The waters are emerald green. They're always freezing cold and they're so worth swimming in. And the forests are just so amazing. The light's incredible. The sky is just absolutely saturated in stars at night. And yeah, I absolutely love it. And you're completely dwarfed by these massive, massive trees. So it's the most humbling feeling in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of camping, because you do a lot of it, um, what is like the most important piece of gear you have in your kit? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think I would probably have to say I would, yeah, I think it would probably be my hand grinder for my coffee and yeah, or my mate Lord, 
either one of those I just love because I'm I'm a saver surprise surprise and I just absolutely love morning rituals and I and I think that grinding coffee by hand is like the only way that I truly like to have it or pouring myself a gourd with mate and just sipping it by a river or sitting on a rock somewhere and just having a morning of savoring that in a place is truly my favorite. Mm -hmm. The best book you've read this year? I think it would have to be Gathering Moss by the same author who wrote, wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer. It was actually her first book and it will make you fall head over heels in love with moss. It's, it's like a love letter to moss. It's incredible. Okay. That sounds amazing. And I will make sure that that is linked in the show notes for sure. Um, an activist voice you believe everyone should follow mm-hmm. on Instagram or on Twitter. We know your voice now. So what is one other voice you think we should listen to? I will say Kwana Chasing Horse. I just love her. And she is the daughter who the documentary film is featuring. And she's absolutely amazing. She just turned 19. She is Gwich'in in Lakota. And I'm pretty sure she's the youngest Indigenous person to be on the cover of Vogue. She just got the cover of Vogue Mexico for April. And she's just redefining representation in the fashion and kind of larger popular industries of media and everything. And she is, I think, also like one of the youngest in her community to have gotten traditional facial tattoos again. And her mother is the one who gave them to her. And her mother is reviving traditional tattooing. And Kwana just has the biggest heart and such a strong spirit. And she is so in love with her lands and so dedicated to her community and way of life. And she's always sharing about that. And she teaches me so much. And she just is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing in so many ways. So quantitizing horse. <laughs> and followed. Um, okay. So last one, you have already contributed so much and accomplished so much. Um, what is one thing five years from now that you want to look back and say, like, I did this or we did this? Well, because you said five years, that's the window we have for ancient forests. <laughs> so I definitely, you know, and that's probably when my PhD would be over. So I absolutely hope that I am able to mobilize every ounce of myself and all the energy that I have to completely dive into um, investigating these industries and the abuses and the harms that they cause and figuring out how to story the memories of these lands and the memories that communities and people hold that are just so imbued with their love for these forests and these places and figure out a way to mobilize that into this counter movement to really challenge and end corporate abuse in BC that's destroying our forests. Thank you so much, Maya. You are uh, not long for this, uh, not long for this digital universe. You're spending this summer completely off grid. <laughs> so I feel very, very grateful and honored that you made time to chat with me for the podcast uh, before you go venture off into the beautiful nature in the north. Thank you. I'm so happy we got to reconnect. This is so fun. I am so grateful to Maya for sharing her wisdom and her experiences with us. I have to admit that at times I feel like there isn't much I can do. I mean, I feel like I also do a lot. I recycle, I compost, I eat a plant-based diet. I try and buy less and live with a smaller footprint. But doing more than that, like particularly driving change at a political and policy level, sometimes feels out of reach. 
Maya has really opened my eyes and made me realize that each one of us can do something concrete. We don't all have to give up our day jobs and stand at the front lines. Instead, we can educate ourselves and we can support the activists doing this work. Whether it's signing and distributing petitions, using our voices to pressure local politicians, or even just providing supplies or funds to the people on the front lines, each one of us has a voice and we can use that voice to make change. I'd so love to know what you thought about this episode because I really wanted to introduce the concept of climate justice and the environment as part of our personal wellness practice. And I'd love to know what you've learned. So be sure to screenshot us and share your thoughts by tagging us at the All Sorts Podcast on Instagram. Be well, friends. 